Thank you very much, uh, Alan. Does that uh, sound all right? No, thanks. Um, <clears throat> it's a, it's a great opportunity to come and talk to you. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to come upstairs and uh, stop worrying about some of the things that are going on down in the uh, down in the project on a day by day basis. And uh, before I forget, we are still raising money for it. So if anybody has uh, come with too much cash in their pockets tonight, I'll be uh, delighted to talk to you later. Um, <clears throat> most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the principles of what we're doing with the, uh, uh, the aircraft factory and, uh, and the racetrack revival. I'm going to concentrate very much on the aircraft factory tonight uh, in the light of my audience. Uh, and so what I'm really uh, going to concentrate on uh, <clears throat> is to go back and look a little bit at uh, why we did uh, the aircraft factory project in the first place. Um, and some of, some of the, uh, the justifications for it, um, update you a bit on the construction process, and then really uh, talk about some of the things that you're going to be able to see uh, in the aircraft factory uh, and some of, the, uh, some of the activities that we're going to be doing in it. Because we're getting to the stage where we now actually have, although it's not yet ready for you to rush in and have a look at it, it is very close uh, to being in condition. Um, we are going to formally open it, or Prince Michael is formally going to open it, on the 13th of November, which, as my, uh, my team keeps reminding me, is now 11 days away. Um, <coughs> so uh, we have, um, we have a, a bit of a deadline. But where we are, we're now at the stage where we can show you, uh, and you are the first group to be seeing, uh, other than some stewards. Uh, Dave, have you already been round and... Uh, and had your initial training. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, some of our stewards have been around, but really uh, nobody outside the, uh, the close museum community has had a real chance to, to have a look at what we're doing. So I hope that you'll enjoy seeing uh, what we're going to do uh, in the factory and you'll start to see how that vision that we've uh, held on to for 10 years, I'm uh, uh, I'm surprised to find out when we've been looking back at the project it's 10 years since we started doing this work. So um, without further ado, I think let's have a look at a bit of the background. Why did we actually uh, <coughs> yes, it does work. Um, <coughs> why, why did we embark on this? After all, we had a big hangar, we had a project. When I first arrived here in 2003, there was a project already on the books to restore the hangar where it was and uh, fill it with aeroplanes, including hanging some from the roof. Um, now that we've done the stre stress uh, calculations on the roof, I think that probably was a good idea that we didn't pursue that bit. It is a very, very lightweight structure. But <clears throat> we decided in the end that just restoring the hangar where it was and putting aeroplanes back in it wasn't going to really advance things uh, beyond just making sure that the aeroplanes were safe and dry. And what we wanted to do, and we couldn't do just in a hangar um, uh, as it was first envisaged, was really tell people what the history of aircraft manufacture was. There's nowhere in this country which was celebrating the history of aircraft manufacture. Um, there's lots of aircraft museums, but none of them actually talking about how aeroplanes are designed and built. And it was driven also by the increasing realisation that as the number of active factories dropped and the number of programs in this country dropped, 
what you didn't see anymore were loads of aircraft assembly lines. And although the, the industry is hugely important to the economy, which I'm just going to come on to in a moment, uh, there was nowhere really, uh, unless you had the appropriate security clearances to get into places like Wharton uh, or could persuade them to open the doors at Bruff uh, to let you see the antediluvian practices there. There wasn't really anywhere where a normal member of the public could go and see an aeroplane being built. Uh, you could see, uh, I think they were still um, uh, painting a few aeroplanes down at Benbridge and of course there's lots of wings being built, um, uh, Bristol, Chester um, and uh, bits of uh, Bombardier. Uh, aircraft being built in Belfast, but there was just nowhere where you could actually go and see uh, an aircraft production line. So we thought that's what we would do. And it wasn't just to do do that. We wanted to celebrate the, uh, the history of aircraft manufacture here. We also wanted to create a bit of a tribute to the tens of thousands of people who worked in the aircraft factories of Inner Surrey. It wasn't just Brooklands, it was Kingston and Dunsfold and the Annex plant up in Adelston and all these things in the near area. And we really wanted to make sure that people understood just how important that was and the enormous contribution that people made. And uh, when you look at Brooklands now, of course, with hardly any of the original um, aviation buildings surviving, at its peak here, um, Vickers Waybridge, with the Brooklands name carefully suppressed so that people wouldn't think uh, about the racetrack, um, Vickers Weybridge employed 14,000 people at its peak. It was a huge, uh, uh, huge local employer. It was the bedrock of the local economy. It's why we have all the houses in Adelston, why Adelston and Byfleet and West Byfleet um, actually became things other than little hamlets. So it was, a, it was a really important thing that we wanted to do from that point of view. But we also wanted to take this fantastic history, uh, the legacy of the aircraft industry here at Brooklands and use it to inspire future generations to uh, embrace the STEM subjects, the science, technology, engineering, maths, which is so important to the future of the manufacturing industries, the high-tech ones, not just aviation, but the motor industry, lots of other industries, so dependent on kids coming through school, actually sticking with those technical subjects and not dropping them all in favour of golf course management or something. And we really, really wanted to use the legacy because what we had here, we had the aeroplanes, we had the output of this factory uh, or factories, and we could use those to show people uh, what the engineers and scientists and technologists could actually do uh, with their hands and with their minds. And so all those things together gave us this, this impetus to go ahead and do something quite revolutionary, um, to create a, a, a museum that's dedicated, or a major museum exhibition that's dedicated to manufacturing rather than to the things that are manufactured. Although obviously it's the things that manufacture, uh, that were manufactured here that help us tell that story. So when we talk about all this being important to the British aerospace industry, that's um, with capitals where you want to put them, we're not talking about BA systems in particular, but the whole of the aerospace sector in the UK. It is amazing just how big it is. And there's some numbers. Last year, the aerospace sector had sales of £37.8 billion in the UK. 
exports of 27.7 billion, you know, three quarters, more than three quarters of the output of the British aerospace sector goes abroad. It employs directly 120,000 people. This was before BAE just announced a couple of thousand uh, redundancies, but still of that order. And they are so the, the, the industry is supporting another 118,000 people in the, in the support industries that, that, that are serving it. So it's an enormously important industry. It's the single biggest exporter uh, in the country outside financial services. And designers and development engineers, 32,000 of them, a quarter of the employment in the aerospace industry are actually highly skilled designers uh, uh, and engineers rather than the, them all being um, uh, the horny-handed sons of toil who uh, put the aeroplanes together. And very encouragingly, there, are, there were last year 3,800 youngsters in apprenticeships in the industry. So it's a massively important industry and one that anything that we can do to encourage um, uh, the continued health of that industry, providing, helping to inspire kids to be the feedstock, to be those apprentices, those technicians, those graduate engineers, uh, and the skilled workers who are still needed on production lines. If we can just keep kids excited enough about technology to stay with those subjects through uh, their formative teenage years and go on uh, to university or technical college or, or wherever or straight into an apprenticeship, then we'll be really putting something back into the community and honouring uh, those people who went before who created that legacy. So that's where we came from. But let's just go back a little bit, um, because we talk a lot about um, Brooklands and the huge role that it played in particular, and uh, now I have to say the, fa the factories at Kingston and Dunsfold as well, and Kingston especially because of its, uh, its status with its aeroplanes coming here for, uh, for erection and, uh, and flying away. But just how important these factories were now, I apologise, these, these charts that are just going to come up have come up in a rather strange uh, format, which makes them a little difficult to read for people beyond row 10. Um, but just to show you how much uh, went on here, just in the early formative years, for instance, in the seven years before the First World War, um, 431 aeroplanes of 73 different types uh, had their first flights from here. Um, Avro uh, contributed about a third of those uh, with 13 different types. Uh, Martin Handeside uh, built 10 different types of aeroplane, um, 11 uh, as their total production. Um, but Sopwith had built 50 aeroplanes or assembled 50 aeroplanes here before the First World War. So there's lots of stuff going on here. And of course, Blario built 180 aeroplanes here uh, and, uh, before uh, war broke out. So quite amazing, even in the very early days. Um, here there were people like uh, Rowe doing his um, <coughs> infamous uh, carrying of his aeroplane in and out of uh, his shed uh, on the finishing straight of the racetrack. You can see there that he has actually taken the railings down on the side of the track, which is what uh, managed to get Colonel Rodakowski so angry about Rowe's presence here, because he'd promised that he wouldn't take the railings down on the side of the track. And convinced Rodakowski for some time that he was actually lifting his aeroplane over the top of the railings every time he took it out. 
in the end, Roe triumphed and Rodakowski went off to do something else. Um, but it, it, uh, it, that, that's the starting point. That was the first potentially viable aeroplane to be built at Brooklands. And uh, so that was the starting point of the whole thing. Once World War I got underway, um, and for those of you who are reading uh, the, the extraordinary output of the Kingston uh, Centenary um, uh, project uh, with its weekly um, uh, emails, uh, with the, the, it's, a, it's a blog of quite fantastic uh, content. Uh, we've seen how aircraft manufacture was being ramped up during World War I from quite small numbers at the beginning to quite huge numbers towards the end. Um, and there were some very big numbers. So over the years of World War I, uh, the manufacturers who were assembling and flying aeroplanes out of here put together just over 7,500 aeroplanes. And the most significant of those uh, was Sopwith with 3,700, Vickers with just over 2,000, Martinside with just over 1,000, and Blerio Anik with another 560, and the wonderful Hilda Hewlett and her partner, uh, before they moved their factory elsewhere, managed to put 18, I think they were B2Cs, uh, together here before they moved to bigger premises. And World War I was the starting point of uh, the local uh, women uh, being involved in aircraft manufacture, and this is a group of, uh, of Vickers employees from World War I. Um, that's a, a horrendous piece, a pair of dividers there in the, in the foreground. Uh, but this whole thing of bringing, getting the local populace involved in aircraft manufacture was really important. And it was at this time that Vickers were building those houses in Adelston and out the back of the, uh, out the, back of the, uh, uh, the, the Brooklyn circuit uh, off Wintersells Road, uh, houses that are still there that were built uh, to house the people they were bringing in to, to, to build aeroplanes. And it went on, of course, uh, those were some of the, uh, the manufacturers. There's um, Blario building 504 SPADs, SE5s, um, Blondo building, uh, Hewlett and Blondo building BE2s, Martinside building all sorts of things. Um, uh, of course, some of the most famous things is, I think that's the ham works of, uh, of Sopworth and uh, Great Vickers Vimy, of course, which was just too late to see active service uh, in the First World War, the two biggest manufacturers. And then just see the huge number of aeroplanes that Sopworth were responsible for. There's uh, something like 25 different types of aeroplane uh, that Sopworth dealt with here uh, over that time, and Vickers building seven uh, different types, but in bigger numbers uh, per type, uh, especially with the 1600 SE5s they built. Um, so uh, really quite substantial production. Then after the war, of course, after that First World War, when Sopwith closed down, reopened again as Hawker, um, the other manufacturers stayed on uh, in smaller and smaller ways, became less and less important. But Hawker and Vickers became the dominant manufacturers here. So in that magical interwar period between 1919 and 1939, um, you had people like Vickers built 44 different types of aeroplane, um, just under 1,400 aircraft that they built, and Hawker were responsible for 2,200. And in fact, if you look closer, um, 
the number of Hawker aircraft that came out of here was actually bigger than the number that Hawker themselves assembled. Because, of course, our friends Vickers, uh, looking for orders and with production capacity to spare, were building Hawker aeroplanes. And this is a wonderful photograph um, of the Vickers uh, works uh, with a whole lot of Hart fuselages in the foreground. And in the background, uh, there are Vickers, uh, Vernons and uh, other things uh, being put together. So, yeah, it's, it's quite an important thing, seeing the two big Brooklyn's manufacturers together um, uh, united by the need for the, of the RAF to have Hawker aeroplanes. And uh, it was because of the combined production of these two companies that in the early 30s, uh, Brooklyn's built aeroplanes accounted for something like 80% of the frontline strength of the RAF. Uh, and it was, uh, they really were the backbone uh, of the RAF in that interwar period. And then, of course, we got to World War II, where things really ramped up again. Um, both Hawker and Vickers made uh, production decisions which stood the country in good stead. Um, Hawker, of course, moved out in 1942. Um, but in that time, uh, before, they, before they disappeared from here, 3,000 hurricanes had, um, had come down the, uh, uh, the line, uh, along with uh, some other stuff. And Vickers, of course, over the period of the war, built... Uh, 3,300 odd aeroplanes, mainly Wellingtons and Warwicks. Um, there were a few uh, Sa uh, Saunders Row aircraft bolted together here as well. But uh, very big uh, output uh, from those two companies, and especially after 1942, just Vickers. And then, of course, post war, um, Vickers bought the site famously 365 acres of Brooklands. They paid £330,000 in 1946, so less than £1,000 an acre to buy, uh, uh, to, to buy this site. And uh, I think they got that back by selling bits off in the 1970s. Um, but in that post-war period, Vickers uh, put together 806 aeroplanes of 13 different types here. And then BAC, uh, as the successor, assembled penny numbers of 111s here. Um, and uh, this, of course, doesn't take into account the major assemblies that were still being built here in the 1970s. Famously, again, uh, the Concorde Ford and our fuselages and tail fins and so forth, uh, plus Hawk fuselages, various other bits and pieces. And, of course, the last flying aeroplanes officially built here were the two built by Vaffa in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and so there we are. Overall, um, 18,835 aircraft we can now account for that had their first flights from here, some 260 different types. And uh, here's some of the World War II production, uh, the uh, Wellington fuselages, and that quite stunning picture of a hurricane in final assembly. Um, it's, I don't know what size... Uh, the negative for that picture was, but it's crystal clear no matter how far you blow it up. It's a beautiful picture. And Vickers, of course, although they were building smaller and smaller numbers of aeroplanes, had to expand their, uh, their factory enormously in order to be able to accommodate things of the size of the Valiant and then uh, the Vanguard and the VC-10, which was the biggest aircraft ever to put, put into serious production in the UK. And, of course, the Vickers works as it was towards the end uh, with his two huge final assembly buildings, uh, still with the original flying village in the top left-hand corner there. 
And it's quite interesting to realize that now the only one of those buildings that you can see uh, clearly is the Aero Club building, the only one that's left um, that you can actually see in this photograph, with the exception that somewhere over here in the, uh, hidden in the depths of the, uh, the flying village was, of course, Keith Prowse's uh, flight ticket off of uh, office of 1911, uh, which now stands in the uh, museum grounds and, uh, of course, was the granddaddy of all airline terminals because it was the first building specifically built for selling aircraft tickets, selling joy rides for a guinea, which is about 326 quid in today's money, if, uh, if you imagine what it was like to uh, take a flight with, uh, through Keith Prowse back in 1911. And of course, the end of the um, the, the end of uh, production, the Concords. Um, this was the Ford fuselage uh, lined with our aeroplane Delta Golf in the foreground there. And there's that final number, the fire, the final uh, edition, 265 types, 18,835, uh, 836 aeroplanes that can be accounted for that had their first flights from here. Hawkers, responsible for 5,000 of them. Vickers for 7,600. Sopwith for 3,842. Martinside for 1,158. They were really big numbers, and that's the legacy that we're celebrating in the Brooklyn's Aircraft Factory and Racetrack Revival. And just, just remember this picture as, you, as we go on to talk further about what was going on. What we did was we took this World War II Bellman hangar from here and moved it over there. We erected the new flight shed building in the background there and reopened this and restored this section of the station street. So that was the project that we finally committed to some 10 years ago. What did it involve? Moving and restoring a 76-year-old relocatable hangar. Uh, which was an aircraft factory building to begin with. Um, that, that's what it was there for uh, when Wellington Final Assembly uh, was under real pressure after the September 1940 air raid. Um, and uh, it was a really important building. It was one of a number of Belmont-style hangars that were built on the site. Um, and it is the only uh, surviving aircraft production building from that enormous uh, site and therefore that's why it's listed. It's the only grade two listed tin shed of its type in the country. Um, and it's certainly not a pretty building, but it has a very real reason for being listed. And then inside that building, we're going to put this unique aircraft factory exhibition, which is so important uh, for doing what we should be doing as Brooklyn's museum. And then building the two-story flight shed building, which has got this fantastic now hangar where we can keep our active aeroplanes and run them out onto the finishing straight. And the purpose-built archive store, the training and restoration workshop, all these things are really important to the overall project. And then uh, restoring uh, the finishing straight as this wonderful new event space. The hangar itself is an interesting structure. Um, it's about 18,000 square feet or 1,500 square meters, uh, roughly, uh, depending on how you uh, measure it inside or out. It was designed as a relocatable building. Um, my favorite uh, statistic about these things is that 
They were designed to be bolted together by unskilled labour in very quick time. And the first of these uh, Bellman buildings, which were the, uh, the lower one, the 18-foot one, rather than the 25-foot high one, which we have, but the 18-foot ones, when the first ones were uh, issued to the RAF in the late 1930s, there was a, um, an allowance uh, of time for a station to put one of these things together. And the allowance was um, a squad of 12 men, not with a crane, but with simple uh, lifting poles and shear legs, um, <clears throat> 12 men, um, 480 man hours to put up one of these buildings. So basically a week to bolt one of these things together. Uh, in the building we have, uh, the, I can't remember the exact, it's about 260 identical structural members, each of them about eight feet long, which form both the columns and the roof trusses. And there's only really two major uh, components in a, in a Bellman hangar. There's these uh, eight foot long modules that, that do the columns and trusses, and then the knees that join the two together. And then there's just a few simple diagonal braces uh, and some lightweight uh, channel sections that are there to support the, uh, support the cladding. To make them easy to put, take apart and put back together, the cladding is held on with J-bolts that hook on to the latticework structure on the inside, pass through the cladding with a wing nut on the outside. So you can, you can take the, sheet, the sheets of corrugated iron off very, very easily just by undoing the wing nuts um, uh, and taking them off. Of course, when you try and do that after 76 years, you find that the uh, J-bolts and wing nuts have rusted a little bit, so we had to cut them off. Uh, but the bolts that hold the main structure together, as we discovered when we took them apart, started taking the building apart, almost all of the black bolts, and they were big, they're about um, three quarters of an inch, um, uh, Whitworth black bolts, they undid with a spanner uh, after the 76 years. Very, very few of them were actually corroded. And the bulk of the bolts that are holding that structure together now are the ones that were on it uh, when it was put up in 1940. We had to have some new ones made uh, where there had been some corrosion, where bolts had been underwater or the structure that they were, um, they were holding together had been underwater and everything had sort of fused together but I would think about 95% of the bolts in the building are the ones that were put in initially, and they were completely unworn and uncorroded. This building did a lot of work over the years, uh, obviously initially for final assembly for Wellingtons and Warwicks. Interestingly, when we took it down and started uh, looking at the, the uh, finishing straight underneath the building, found a set of, sort of steel, not exactly rails, but more steel tracks uh, set into the concrete um, of the racetrack and we think that was where they, uh, they moved Warwicks uh, through the building uh, because the wingspan of a Warwick was too great to actually pass through the building at Wellington you could just push in the back doors and it rolled out the front door with its, uh, with its wings attached but the Warwick, uh, the wingspan was too great so they came down the building diagonally and they were slid on trolleys hence the, uh, the steel rails and the floor. It was used as a mock-up shop, it was used for the guided weapons uh, uh, operation of Vickers and of course um, for 25 years or more it's where our main internal aircraft uh, display was for the museum. It was, it is fair to say, an absolutely grotty building. Um, for those of you who've forgotten how horrible it was, this is a reminder. Um, it was, 
It was well past, certainly its cladding was well past any sell-by date. Um, it was being held together by moss and tar uh, on the roof. Um, I remember doing some filming in it uh, many, many years ago before I was uh, officially involved uh, with the museum. I was doing a, a film for the Scania Transport Trust Awards and we came here because the Wellington was, a, was a, um, uh, an award winner and I stood on the old balcony that used to overlook uh, the Wellington and tried to do a piece to camera on a day when the wind was blowing and we kept having to stop filming because the banging from the loose sheets on the roof uh, was so loud that you just couldn't uh, carry on uh, with the filming. Um, uh, so uh, it, it was not a, not a pleasant building and uh, it's long been uh, uh, the theory of the stewards who worked in it that in winter it was colder inside that building than it was outside. <laughs> For a few brief weeks, it looked absolutely fantastic. After we'd got all the clutter out of it, it started to look like a really promising building. This is just before uh, it was taken apart. Um, and you could start to see the potential of it as a big open space that you could start doing things with. And so this is the, fa this is the, the, the building with everything uh, taken out, including all the asbestos and the pigeon nests. And the two of them actually coincided. The, piston, the pigeons were actually nesting in the old asbestos pipe lagging uh, because it was obviously nice and warm, and presumably pigeons don't last long enough to get asbestosis. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, it was a real challenge, and the more we saw of it, the more we thought, you know, have we really got this right? And you could tell from the size of the tenders that we were getting back from the construction industry, people were very, very scared of taking this building apart and putting it back together. Um, they, they, were, they could see uh, no end of risk in doing it, um, and that caused us quite a lot of sleepless nights. But in the end, it was taken apart and it was put back together with less hassle in the actual structure than uh, a lot of people thought. That's not to say there weren't problems, because where we decided to put it would be the Vickers and then BAC dump. Um, and underneath this lovely pile of dirt in the foreground uh, were 10,000 cubic metres of horribly contaminated soil of all sorts, um, full of rubbish. I'll show you some of the rubbish that was in that uh, thing, uh, in, in that pile. But they'd just been tipping stuff off the edge of the finishing straight of the track because it was cheaper to do that than take rubbish away in the 50s and 60s. And we inherited uh, that, and it was a real problem. So the enabling works to get to the point where we could actually start moving buildings and uh, building new ones became a very, very fraught period. And the, the project fell seriously behind time and went seriously over budget uh, in this period because things were far worse than even we had expected. And we did have the knowledge because this um, large green polytunnel um, alongside the site is, of course, the London Bus Museum. Um, and when they did their building uh, back in 2010-2011, they had actually taken out about 6,000 cubic metres of this stuff. So we thought we knew what was in there because we'd seen what they took out. Um, and ours was far worse. Um, uh, so here we go. Taking the hangar apart did give us 
uh, some wonderful opportunities. You saw some of those shots of you know what did an empty hangar look like. Probably my favourite picture from the whole project is this one, which was taken by Stefan, our volunteer photographer, after a heavy rain shower, after the building had been declad. And it's, it's quite a magical picture. Uh, but you can see just how lightweight a structure this is. If you go and look at a standard World War II T2 hangar, um, as still littered across the RAF bases of this country. You see just how much stronger they were because they were intended to stay in one place. And you can see how this was something that you could literally put together very quickly. Such a lightweight structure. And this, of course, caused quite a lot of concern uh, to our structural engineers. Um, and when you finally get let loose into the, uh, the aircraft factory, you will see that we have actually added strengthening uh, to the corners uh, up here where the knees are in the uh, just in this top corner here we've actually added some extra structure and we've painted it a different color so that people can see what is new and what is old but uh, we think it's probably almost capable of handling the standard Surrey 50-year snowfall now but uh, it was an interesting thing and as you can see it did come apart as a as a as a modular uh, structure you just we took the roof trusses off as complete 100-foot-long uh, sections and dismantled them on the ground. Um, and it did all come apart amazingly quickly and amazingly easily. And uh, for the first time there, you can see this site that had this view that hadn't been seen for 76 years, standing on the finishing straight outside the clubhouse and looking straight up to the banking, which was one of the great winners that we wanted out of the whole thing. If you look carefully, round about the uh, mid-left point of this picture, you'll see the sort of challenges that we were up against in the rubbish that your forefathers left behind them. I hope none of you were responsible for dumping stuff in the Vickers dump in the 1950s. But you can see all sorts of rubbish in here. Um, and there's bits of asbestos sheeting, there's, uh, there's spare bits of corrugated iron, there's old aircraft tyres, there's bits and pieces of wiring, all sorts of rubbish. And down in here was what became our nemesis, uh, which is six oil drums that had been ducked in there sometime 60-odd years ago, full of oil, and the oil drums had corroded and let loose their six times 44 gallons of oil, which had contaminated over a thousand cubic meters of soil which had to come out and it was right at the bottom of the excavation for the foundations. So when we took this stuff out we then found ourselves having paid a fortune to get rid of uh, this contaminated soil around the place. We then had to buy clean fill and import it again, another thousand cubic meters of beautiful fill. And that little bit right at the very end, just when we thought we had everything ready to go, getting rid of a thousand cubic meters of oil contaminated soil, 60,000 liters of oil contaminated water, um, and re-importing uh, the new fill for the site cost us an extra 275,000 pounds with specialist contractors brought in from Wales with waterproof lorries to carry this horrible muck away uh, to approved sites all around the place. It was a real challenge and it was a very dispiriting time. But we got on with it um, and the first thing we did was built uh, the flight shed. And this is just a really useful picture to show the structure of the flight shed. Um, 
big open span upper floor, uh, about 10,000 square feet floor area, capable of holding about 10 aeroplanes. Um, uh, and it'll be a movable feast, the aeroplanes we put in there um, uh, and how they are laid out. But it is meant to be an active hangar where we keep aeroplanes, roll them out onto the finishing straight uh, and run their engines, taxi them about, that sort of thing. And then underneath you can see uh, the pillars supporting that, uh, that big single span uh, concrete floor. Uh, and they are the partitions internally which divide our fantastic new archive store from the workshops and offices down there. And you can see just how deep this, uh, this pile of uh, rubble and dirt and crud was. Uh, the, the floor, the ground level at this point is about 20 feet below uh, the, uh, the base level of the track running behind it. Uh, so the track when built in 1907 was actually super elevated at this point by about 20 feet. And here's uh, the hangar going back together. There will shortly be up on, uh, uh, on andysvideo.com the 11-minute um, uh, history of the re-erecting of, uh, uh, of the hangar. Andy's done three sets of uh, these, uh, these films with the time-lapse camera that's been looking out over the site for the, during the whole project. And the latest one is the re-erection of the hangar. Um, it, as I say, it takes about 11 minutes. It's, he's still tidying it up. We've seen the, a proof copy of it, but it hasn't gone publicly live yet. But when you do uh, get an opportunity to look at it, and you just Google uh, Andy's video and look for the Brooklyn's, uh, uh, for the, for the Brooklyn's films, uh, there's a really illuminating 15 seconds in the middle of it where you see the P1127 through the open doors uh, going up onto uh, its stand. So it's, it's well worth watching when it, when it comes up in live. But here, what you can see is the, uh, the hangar with this fantastic new thing, the, uh, um, the, the steward welfare um, contribution, which is insulation on the hangar. Um, so two layers of corrugated iron rather than one, which is why we had to look very carefully at the strength of the structure. But uh, uh, very important, and the hangar is now wonderfully warm compared with how it used to be. And then the last thing we did was um, get some camouflage, as there was on the south uh, end of the hangar during the war, um, uh, got some camouflage back on uh, to give the building some of the feel of what it was like in 1940. And so a couple of weeks ago when we had our aviation day, um, Catherine went aloft in a helicopter and took some views of the site. And if you think back to that picture I showed you, the concept drawing uh, which we created all those years ago. Now you can see there it is exactly as promised. There's the hangar moved. This is where the hangar was. You can see the different colour in the concrete where it's been washed and repaired uh, and moved over onto that new site. The flight shed building in the background. You'll notice it sits at a slightly odd angle. One of the things we discovered when we got rid of the pile of rubble, we discovered that the supporting embankment of the finishing straight is actually a different shape than uh, was appeared from the photographs. And we had to actually angle this building in order to avoid cutting too far into the supporting embankment there. Uh, but it's made, a, made for a lovely vista coming up here. You don't actually notice the flight shed until you get to it. But there it is, the flight shed in the background, the hangar in the foreground, 
and the finishing stroke reopened. So um, that bit of it, I can safely say, is job done. And not only have we got those two buildings, but what we had envisaged with reopening the finishing straight all those years ago, here we are, aviation day this year, with the Vimy sitting out on the finishing straight with its engines running and people out there able to enjoy uh, the spectacle of aircraft engines running uh, on the finishing straight of Brooklands. Really important, this, bit, this particular bit of concrete uh, where it starts to slope up towards the banking. This is the very bit of concrete on which Rowe did his experimental uh, attempts at flying the Rowe 1 biplane, because when he was doing that, there wasn't an airfield yet. Um, so he was actually trying to fly off the concrete, and that's how he managed to get the Rowe 1 airborne, being towed behind a 40-horsepower Thames motor car down this finishing straight. So uh, that, that is such a fantastic thing now to see uh, the aeroplane out there. Uh, and we had five aeroplanes running that day. There'll be more running by the time we get the Hurricane and the Blériot uh, running again, hopefully next year. Uh, we'll have this fantastic air force of Brooklyn's aeroplanes that can come out and be exercised on the finishing straight. So let's go inside the factory now. And a reminder there of that grotty old building and some of the concept drawings that we used to sell the whole thing to the lottery when we were uh, going after that crucially important funding that gave us uh, the opportunity to get on with this project. You can see right back the early concept drawings showed aircraft on production lines, showed the P1127 hovering above the production floor, uh, the whole thing to give a bit of theatre uh, to, to this concept. So that's what, we, um, that, that's what we were aiming to do and I hope over the next uh, few slides you'll see just how far we've got. This is what we were aiming to do, to have workshops, uh, production lines, the whole thing, get people to understand everything. Upstairs a design office where people can try out the compromises of uh, designing an aeroplane um, both civil and military. We've got a civil design office and a military design office up there so you can design a bomber or an airliner um, and see how you go compared with the likes of Pearson and Edwards and Cam and see whether your ideas are as good as theirs. Um, and so that, that's the sort of thing we were aiming for. This was the first real 3D projection of what we were going to do, laying uh, the aircraft out, the main production line running through the centre of the building, and on either side, sub-assemblies, so things like undercarriages and uh, propellers and engines and uh, all the bits and pieces that go into an aeroplane, and the workshops, the carpenter's shop, the tinsmith's shop, the machine shop, all these things, either side of the main production line. So, that's what we aimed to do. Now, in 11 days time, we're going to show the world what it actually is that you do. And what we want people to do is to get immersed in the factory experience. So the first thing they'll do when they walk into the factory, they'll clock on. Um, so we've got um, clocking in machines, um, we've got clocking in cards, which will also uh, become a sort of training record um, you can see on the clocking in card, in and out, top and bottom, and then on the rest of the card, 
the individual workshops that people can visit and try out the various skills of building aeroplanes. And they can have their card stamped on the embossing machine in each of those uh, workshops to say that they've tried it out. And with kids, you know, we're going to dress them up in, Vicar, in Brooklyn's aircraft factory um, uh, overcoats uh, so that they can really get a feel for what it's like to go and work in a factory for a few hours um, and uh, really live the whole experience. So, what does it look like in reality? This is what it looked like this afternoon. Um, as you can see, there's the tinsmith shop in the, uh, in the foreground uh, with a number of uh, machines in it. And there you can see a TSR2 uh, forward fuselage section, Supermarine Swift in the background. We're going to come back to all these things and just talk a little bit about some of those uh, exhibits in a couple of minutes' time. But this is the sort of crowded, busy factory feel uh, that we're looking for. And you can see already the, uh, the cladding of the building is starting to acquire that lived-in look. It's brand new, but it's already starting to acquire that sort of feel that this is actually a factory that's been there for a while. And scattered around those production lines, this is one of the uh, sets of uh, um, wing sections that we've got standing in egg boxes like uh, we've, we've done for many years, borrowed from the factory, uh, the, the idea of standing wings up. So there's this sort of little surprise and delight thing all the way through the factory. Um, the tallest bit there, by the way, this bit, um, the very fine lattice uh, structure there, the wing section in the back, which is very accessible from the other side, um, is an original Vimy wing, um, uh, which we've had in store for a long time. It's been restored, but it's, uh, we've got quite a bit of original Vimy wing, and that's one bit of it. This is a Viscount outer wing. For those of the Hawker persuasion, this is the surviving uh, part of the wing from XP984, from where it was written off in its crash at Bedford in 1975. And we found that wing at Dunkerswell down in the West Country and acquired it uh, earlier this year. So, what have we got in there? Does it, these are some of the major exhibits, and it's not, it's not all of them, but some of the things we've got in there, the Wellington, the Swift, uh, Valiant, TSR2, Vanguard, 1127, Tabloid, um, Stroke, Schneider, uh, Viscount, just some of the things we've got in there. Here's the Wellington, it's, it's our icon aircraft, if you like, uh, one of only two survivors of the 11,500 Wellingtons built. It's the only survivor to have seen combat, not only uh, it was involved in uh, bombing raids in the early years of the war. It was one of those that came back from the infamous Battle of Illigaland Bight in December 1939, daylight raid on Willemshaven, uh, which was catastrophic and helped the RAF decide that mass daylight bombing raids with slow, vulnerable aeroplanes was a really bad idea. But this aeroplane came back from that, survived another year uh, before it had an engine failure over Loch Ness in December 1940 and then spent 45 years underwater before Robin Holmes and his team uh, dragged it out from there. 100,000, we have to say person hours these days, uh, went into the uh, hours, went into the restoration of this aeroplane. Uh, we've just refreshed the fabric um, uh, before it goes, uh, before it went back on display. 
Uh, one of the great things about this, when it came out of the lock, um, the wings uh, were able, the, the taper bolts that hold the wings on undid, and uh, we've just had the wings off and back on again, and these wonderful taper ratchet bolts that hold the wings on a Wellington, they're still working perfectly after all these years, and it's just a matter of an hour or two to put a wing back on uh, on the Wellington. It's wonderful. Um, and by the time you get to see it in the factory, it will actually be sitting with its tail up, hor fuselage horizontal, as they were, as they came down the production line. Close by, the Supermarine Swift. There's, only, there's one complete Swift surviving, and this. And this is the fuselage of WK198, the aeroplane with which Mike Lithgow broke the world airspeed record, held it for a few brief weeks. Um, uh, very embarrassingly, uh, Supermarine went to Libya to get some nice thin air to get their uh, high-speed run. And of course, Hawkers just took their uh, hunter down the road to the south coast and just blattered up and down uh, the seafront and got the, uh, the uh, airspeed record back. Um, but it's a significant aeroplane, and of course, Mike Lithgow was hugely important in the history of, of this place and uh, unfortunately lost his life in the uh, crash of the prototype uh, 111. Uh, but it's wonderful to have this back uh, cosmetically so much nicer than it was uh, when it sat outside here for years, and we're very proud to have it on display. Um, it's taken an awful lot of work to get it to that condition. Um, Vickers Valiant, um, XD816, the last Valiant to fly. Um, here's its uh, cockpit section, um, restored. It was one of the bomber tanker uh, variants, um, and I just chucked in that uh, photograph of uh, what the uh, cockpit sections looked like when they were being built here um, back in the early 50s, and so here's the same thing sitting on a trolley, very similar to its original one um, in, in the factory. As I say, this was the last Valiant to fly, um, so a very important aeroplane in a lot of regards, and uh, very pleased to have it properly displayed in the factory rather than hiding away as it has done for years in various buildings around here. And then the, uh, the TSR2 uh, cockpit section, this one was actually used, uh, this bit of a TSR2 was used for the ejector seat uh, trials. Um, there are very few bits of, uh, of TSR2 left, there's the two cosmetically complete ones at Cosford uh, and at Duxford, and then we have this bit here. Uh, very pleased to have it again. Huge amount of work has gone in uh, to getting that looking decent and respectable. Um, and uh, the canopy is even open. Uh, the, there's no mechanism for holding them open, so they will be displayed shut. But uh, those of you who've seen the photographs of dozens of TSR2 fuselages uh, lying around the factory here, it's nice to know that we've got at least one bit of one here. Then. The Vickers Vanguard cockpit mock-up, um, again, an heroic rebuild. This thing's been cut in half uh, over the years. Of course, it was built uh, right where it's uh, it now being displayed. Um, it's, it's been a bit of a nomad. Uh, it ended up with the Science Museum, who sent it off to their outpost in Scotland, uh, and uh, it was donated by them back to us um, uh, 12 years ago. Um, again, a heroic level of reconstruction that's gone on uh, with the team working up in the flight shed over the last few months to get this thing back together, repainted in its original Trans Canada colours. 
very pleased with it. Uh, it's a lovely example of the work that was going on here, other than just uh, the, the uh, complete aeroplanes, some of the other things that went on here at Brooklands. And it's a lovely piece when, uh, when you get to see it. And then we go on to our problem child, which was XP984. Um, it's, had a, it's had a horrible history. Uh, say it, was, uh, it was written off. Um, it became the Dunsfold Gate Guardian. It came here when Dunsfold closed. Um, several years ago, the RAF Museum uh, decided that they'd like to get their kestrel restored, and so could they please have their kestrel wing back. Um, and we were given a totally unsuitable sort of Harrier-type wing uh, to uh, put onto it. I think it was an 1127 wing, but an unswept one, so it didn't fit our airframe, which is six inches longer than the unswept other five. Um, so it was a real problem child. It took us ages to find um, a, a wing that would actually fit um, XP984. In the end, we did actually manage to find uh, Harrier GR3 wing, which we had to buy because the RAM MOD won't give you spare bits. They've got, they've got dozens of dead Harriers around the place. Uh, they're all they're all over the country. They didn't all go to the states. There's Harriers everywhere. And will we uh, will the MOD just turn around and say, yeah, here have a gash wing that we don't need anymore? Uh, it's really really difficult to get anything out of them. Fortunately. Uh, through um, the private sector, we managed to get hold of a Harrier wing, and then Dave Cotton and Dave Collingridge and their team uh, just entered into a really heroic job of getting this thing back together, getting the wing on it, returning it to bare metal uh, so that it looks like it did when it was flying, and it's the most wonderful uh, exhibit now in place. And I just thought I'd show you a couple of pics of how we got it up uh, onto the uh, post uh, that it now stands on. So Finches of Bookham, the specialist machinery movers, built these towers there. You can see there, I think a total of four big uh, rail-mounted winches. Uh, there's two on this side here, and then you can see the other two there and there. Uh, created a lifting frame. Um, this was one of the real problems. I'll show you in the next slide. Um, to lift one of these things up, they're the very devil, of course, because they're bicycle undercarriage, uh, so they don't sit on their undercarriage if the wings aren't on. Um, and to try and get this whole thing up there supported, um, the problem was the uh, the jigs that uh, or the cradles that you use for supporting Harriers and P1127s and so forth when their wings aren't uh, attached. Uh, were designed for all sorts of reasons, uh, so you couldn't have the nose wheel pointing straight and to support it on the original uh, cradle, you had to have the nose wheel at 90 degrees and therefore you couldn't actually just drop this thing onto the supports that we'd engineered and put in place. So we had to uh, create a new cradle, which was again a real nightmare and we got that cradle a couple of days before we uh, lifted the uh, the 1127 into place. So if anybody uh, wants to move uh, a Kestrel or Harrier or P1127 in the future, we have got a far better cradle than the original. <laughs> and this is what we did with it. Um, and uh, uh, we've, we've painted the uh, support structure since then, but it is the most amazing sight. When you walk into the hangar, there is XP984 
hanging above you, um, a, a real, uh, real statement uh, of British ingenuity. And then there's the wonderful Sopwith tabloid, Schneider float plane. Um, this is a representation of the aircraft that won the first Schneider trophy flown by Howard Pixton, 1913, uh, built uh, by Steve Green and volunteers here at the museum for the, uh, with the original intention that it would end up in Kingston. And uh, when uh, the good burghers of Kingston uh, managed to say no to having it hanging from a uh, shopping centre ceiling or whatever, we were absolutely delighted that it came back here and now forms a wonderful uh, adjunct to our displays here and really, really appreciate having it back here. And it's, it's a wonderful uh, evocation of the construction techniques of those early aeroplanes. It's displayed half clad, so you can see uh, what the bare structure is like internally, and then uh, on the other side, what it is, uh, what it's like when when uh, when covered in fabric. Brilliant, brilliant exhibit, and uh, a little bit more about it later. And then uh, one of my disappointments in this. Uh, factory exhibition, I wanted to display a Viscount with its cockpit off so you could see the elliptical cutout in the top of the uh, pressure hull where the cockpit bolts on, um, but it became too difficult to actually do this and preserve the cockpit structure, so we've had to display it like this, but it's really important. It shows so much of the development in aircraft structures over a tiny period of time. If you look, the, this wing uh, that sits just in front of it, the Wellington wing, that's the same wing that was used on the Vickers Viking. The early Vikings had Wellington wings, fabric covered. That, the Viking flew in 1946 with that sort of structure. Two years later, the, uh, the Viscount was flying with an all-stressed uh, metal skin, pressurized stress skin fuselage. And to see these two bits of engineering side by side so you can see how quickly aviation technology was moving in that period is one of the great uh, things that we're getting out of this project. In the foreground there you can see one of the uh, uh, original factory benches that was saved um, by our uh, group of fossickers led by Julian Temple when the factory was being closed in the late 80s. As buildings were vacated, Julian was in there stealing bits of stuff and squirrelling it away. He managed to keep most of it hidden from my two predecessors as uh, museum directors. Michael Phillips in particular tried to get rid of a lot of this stuff and then Julian kept taking it out of a building and showing Michael that it was going to a skip and then somehow it got out of the skip and went back, got hidden again. And now, all these years later, these things are coming into their own and these benches form uh, the basis of the exhibit, the, the bench-based exhibits in the factory. Wherever possible, we've used original Vickers BAC uh, workbenches, and they are just fantastic. The, the patina, uh, all the places where people drilled into them, where they cut things on them and everything else, you could never invent the level of distress that these things have. It's just fantastic. Then, Bristol Pegasus engine, as used in Wellingtons, this one actually came off a Wellington that crashed in Scotland, um, and uh, uh, it's one of a number of aero engines we have, illustrating the main moves, uh, main advances in design 
Uh, we've got our big engine exhibition in the Strat Chamber, but we thought we'd have a sample number of engines in the factory. So people just see the challenges involved in housing these uh, various different sizes and shapes uh, of engine in the aircraft structures that uh, were being built. So a great thing to have on display in there. Then a couple of undercarriages here. We've got the, the, the one with the white stripes on the tyres was the original dot, drop test um, uh, undercarriage for the VC-10, which survived some fairly, fairly major abuse uh, in period. And then alongside is our other bit of surviving Valiant. That's the, uh, the unusual tandem uh, main undercarriage leg of a Valiant. Um, so a uh, couple of nice undercarriages there to compare. And we've also got um, some Concorde main gear legs in various stages of, um, of machining. So you can see how they move from the original forgings through to the final machined uh, earlier struts. So we've got a lot, quite a lot of stuff in, in undercarriage, which is a, an unsung but incredibly important part of an aircraft. And then our next biggest challenge was uh, to get an Airbus A320 wing up onto the wall of the hangar. Um, this particular wing uh, came off an aircraft that was retired uh, back at the end of uh, 2015 uh, and uh, Mark Gregory of ASI uh, donated it to us when we went and asked him for one and of course the, the A320 wing is the, is the last great civil project from uh, the factory and design office here. Uh, this wing that was designed back in the early 80s other factories within the BAE Empire having failed to perhaps get uh, the wing design right, it came here, it was dealt with, and there, it is enormously important that we can point to that thing and say that wing is still in production 45 years after it was designed, four different sites around the world building uh, that wing, um, an original Brooklyn's uh, piece of design. and so. Uh, we fought long and hard to get that thing on the wall. We have had to create a whole support structure to hold it in place. It's heavy, um, it's awkward, it's displayed. That's the underside of the wing facing outwards. And sometime in the next 10 days, we will actually get its flaps uh, remounted on it, fully deployed, so you can actually see how the whole modern complex wing works. Sitting alongside it, the centre section uh, cut through of Concord to show the beautiful lightweight structure of Concorde. Um, it's not until you actually see this and look at it and you realise just how thin the skin of that aircraft is and when you think how high Concords fly, the, uh, the pressure differential on a Concorde fuselage compared with that of uh, a normal subsonic airliner and the extreme lack of depth in the outer skin, especially up on the crown, is quite something to behold. Uh, it's a pity it's French built this bit, but um, uh, spirit of uh, Entente Cordiale. Um, and it is uh, a very important survivor of the uh, fatigue test airframe, which went through that huge number of cycles at Farnborough before it was dismantled in the uh, uh, late 1980s. And uh, we've got it here. It's a really useful bit uh, to show how aircraft structures have advanced. And of course, this machining from the solid, which was so critical to the success of the Concorde structure. So those are some of the big, big things that we've got on display. I wanted to just show you some of the little things that we've dug out of stores. And most of this stuff have, just has not been seen in years. 
So, for instance, here, um, the two, uh, the micrometer and dividers, are from the uh, Hewlett and Blondo factory. Um, so they they were in use um, early years of World War One. Here, the sewing machine was borrowed by Tommy Sopworth from the mother of a barmaid uh, working in the local area and was used for stitching fabric on early Sopworth aeroplanes. Um, we have here an apprentice's tag. Um, the uh, object in the centre is not a woolly mammoth. Uh, it is a World War I lady welder's leather apron. Uh, uh, very, very fragile. It's going into a special case, but that sort of stuff has been hidden away. And uh, it's sort of, you know, uh, when you compare it with the modern high tech stuff that people wear these days when they're welding, that was what they were wearing at the time. Uh, and of course, on the right, uh, your standard apprentice um, uh, task build yourself a toolbox. Uh, I think it was John Cook built uh, this one. He uh, worked at Vickers for about 40 years, started as an apprentice. Uh, this is his toolbox. Uh, we've got one or two of these. This is a lovely one to have. Um, the life that we're showing in the factory is far more than just the factory floor. Here's a surviving relic um, uh, from, uh, from the 1970s, uh, the uh, Joint Shop Stewards Committee banner, um, dating probably from the, uh, from the year of the, uh, from the, of the strike. Um, but again, a very, very rare survivor, and uh, we're delighted to have it on display. Again, for those of you of a Kingston persuasion, uh, Sydney Cam's desk, which has been hiding in my formal office for, for years, is coming out, will be on display, and those are his, uh, some of his drawing instruments, which will be displayed securely uh, alongside it, up in the design office on, on the mezzanine. And then again, uh, some of you might recognise some of these wind tunnel models, all with a P number on them. Um, uh, this is We've got a huge number of models which are now going on display uh, in cases uh, so that people can understand just uh, wind tunnel models uh, and marketing models. We've got a whole lot of them coming out. Uh, they've all been hidden away on the mezzanine and the acoustics building for years. And then some of the things we're doing letting people understand how uh, various aircraft structures were built. And so here are some of the things that we're going to be demonstrating to people within the factory, from fabric tensioning, wire bracing, how to make wooden joints, shaping wood, building wooden structures, metal structures, bending and folding, rolling, riveting. Uh, we've got a milling machine, which I'll show you. And then we're showing some of the technologies as well, like variable pitch propellers. You can sit there and alter the pitch on a, on a propeller. We have a purpose-built wind tunnel, and then we've got the design offices. So here's some stuff in the carpenter's shop. We've got a whole lot of wooden joints that you can actually take apart and put back together to see how strong a finger joint is compared with a butt joint. Um, and uh, so people can actually play around with these things and see how strong uh, structures are. Um, we're, we're demonstrating safely, quite difficult to do, um, how you can heat uh, wood and bend it into complex shapes uh, with this amazing rig with all sorts of interlocks in it so that people don't stick their hands in and uh, get scalded. But 
and we'll be able to let people see how in just a few minutes you can actually bend permanently a piece of wood and leave it far stronger than it would be as a, a, as a flat piece of wood. Here's our wind tunnel, um, designed and built specifically for us. You can alter the angle of attack, alter the wind speed. Um, it rises, the, that wing section rises and falls on counterbalances uh, so that you can fly this wing effectively free within the wind tunnel. We have different shapes, uh, different profiles of wing uh, that the explainer can pop into the wind tunnel and you can just play around with it. And you can, you, we've proven you can get the wing to stall, uh, you can do all sorts of things with it. It's a really, really magic bit of kit. Um, wire bracing as uh, displayed just across the aisle from it with the, uh, with the uh, little Schneider float plane. Uh, people can just try this out for themselves, tightening up all the turnbuckles and turning a loose and floppy structure into a really tight one, or if they come across it as a really tight one, loosening the turnbuckles and seeing how weak it becomes. We've splashed out on a brand new CNC mill, um, which will allow us to demonstrate to people uh, the virtues of integral machining uh, for wing skins and other bits of aircraft structure. And the magic thing about this, uh, which is purpose designed for a, for a teaching environment, comes with 300 um, software licenses, which we can uh, hand out to the local schools so they can actually uh, play, uh, design uh, a, a 4A machine tool using, using the program. They can export their designs down the wire and come here and actually see uh, this machine tool making things that they've designed. Um, it's a, just, a, just a really important uh, uh, development that and it's displayed with an old rhomback lathe and uh, uh, another smaller lathe and uh, some of the earlier stuff but uh, a really good step forward. Wood shaping, we've got some vices where people can play around with sanding, reshaping bits of wood under supervision, even grab hold of a spoke shave and, and actually shape bits of wood uh, into, into various shapes. This is, this is particularly addictive. I find everybody who gets anywhere near this starts playing with a spoke shave and trying to get long, beautiful curls of wood and everything else. And so, so it's a lovely, engaging little experiment. In the tinsmith shop, we've got three uh, machines side by side. Uh, there's a, a small hand-operated roll here. Uh, you feed a strip of metal into, roll it into a shape. Next door, we've got a folder. All these things for um, modern health and safety reasons have to be behind guards and so forth, but we've made them as, as accessible as we possibly can. And then once you've rolled your piece of metal in here and folded a couple of shapes uh, in here, or folded the ends on the rolled bit of metal, you put them all together inside uh, a, a static rivet down there and you actually rivet your bits of metal together and take them away as a souvenir. Here's our variable pitch propeller um, uh, demonstrator, so you can sit there and with the big knob on the bottom you can alter the pitch on the propeller and watch the little orange windsock inside move from blowing one way to blowing the other way and doing nothing in the middle. Um, it's, all, uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit of fun but it's also something that really helps people understand some of the things that go into uh, aeroplanes. And once you've done all that and you've been up onto the uh, design office, which is not yet complete, so I can't really show you what's up there, but some lovely big drawing board size uh, screens on which you can play. We go across into the flight shed over the bridge where we're going to have 
um, aeroplanes displayed as if getting ready for flight. We can just move them around. They're not in fixed positions other than the uh, two-seat Harrier and the Hunter will be pretty much there all the time. Uh, there's Wellington walkthrough fuselages up here as well um, when it's, uh, it's there already but waiting restoration. Um, and various activities going on up here. Some uh, display cases talking about um, the, uh, the flying aspects, what the test pilots did, what the delivery pilots from the ATA did. Um, so we've got uh, a lot of displays on that sort of thing. Um, you can uh, play with a Morse code thing here, which is a proper Morse key, um, and you can send messages to people um, on the on the Morse code thing, and a big mural on the wall. It's a really nice modern hangar with some interesting things in it. And in the display cases up there, we've got more really interesting stuff. Like, for instance, Hilda Hewlett's flying gloves um, and uh, Diana Bonato Walker's uh, ATA uniform. Um, some of the things that, uh, uh, that that we've been keeping hidden away and are now coming out into wonderful uh, controlled climate uh, conservation grade showcases so that people can actually see them. Um, here's some interesting pilot's possessions. On uh, the left is George Bullman's uh, uh, knee pad. Uh, in the centre is John Alcock's pen knife and on the right is Hugh Merriweather's flying helmet. Uh, all those things out so people can actually just get to see them and, and enjoy them. We're doing some serious learning in this new operation. Currently we have a capacity for about 13,500 kids coming through uh, the museum on curriculum-based school visits. By the time we've got everything up and running, we'll have a capacity for 25,000 of those a year, catering for all ages from the under fives all the way through to adult further edu education, U3A and so forth. We create lesson plans for them. We create packages that schools can do. Uh, they can choose from a menu the sort of things they want to do. We think they'll all want to come through the, uh, uh, the, the factory, but they all want to do Concord. They want to do other things as well. So lots of opportunities for kids of all ages, learners of all ages, uh, to do. And they've all been, uh, we're all informed by teacher and student panels that we have working with us on refining what the operation is here. Some of these learning operations uh, uh, going all the way back to the very, very young kids coming up through normal school age ones. Um, Mini Aces is a brilliant operation that we've already started running under the lottery funded project uh, for the under fives, just getting them involved in doing things with their hands rather than just sitting and uh, playing with mum's iPhone. Um, then we get to the Saturday Science Clubs. Uh, for those, you know, people keep getting told uh, that teenagers won't do anything here. They'll just sit in their bedrooms playing with their iPhones or their computers or whatever. Our Saturday Science Clubs, which we're running several times a year now, four weekends consecutively, what we're seeing is kids really want to do this stuff. They're all booked out um, well in advance. We can't cater with the demand for the Saturday Science Club, which is just a fantastic uh, development. And then the Aviation Heritage Skills. We've got all these wonderful old aeroplanes and bits of them that we've been looking after. And a lot of the people who've been looking after them are people who retired from the factories here, collected their check, wandered across here, and became volunteers. And so they had all the skills, they had all the knowledge built in. 
we're now having to hand that knowledge and skill on to the next generation, the people who are going to be looking after these aeroplanes in 10, 20, 30 years' time. We picked up on the, uh, the old National Aviation Heritage Skills Initiative, which was lottery funded uh, about seven, eight years ago, ran for several years and then ran out of funding. We've resurrected it as our own Aviation Heritage Skills uh, operation here. We have um, uh, an employed uh, uh, instructor uh, to, to run these courses. Uh, we've got the capacity to put 30 of our volunteers a year through our program uh, that eventually will get back to having uh, city and guilds accreditation um, uh, and something that's really important. Um, we're not only seeing demand from our own volunteers for this stuff, we've got other museums already asking for places on these courses. It's very, very important that we're able to do this and teach people how to look after, maintain, restore, repair these old aeroplanes. And uh, you can see some of the things that we've already been doing, the sort of stuff that's what we've got to be able to do in the future. And then we're just trying to involve people in as many ways as possible. As I said, we've got teachers' panels, advisory panels, youngsters working with us, all sorts of people uh, trying to work with us and to make, something, to make sure that what we're doing is something which really does have relevance to the community. And it's changing day by day, hour by hour. Four hours ago, we moved that lovely uh, Sopwith uh, float plane into its new position in the hangar. So uh, we're moving, I think we moved two aeroplanes in today and a whole lot of other stuff. So it's all going on. Um, official opening on the 13th of November. It'll be open to the public on the 14th of November. Uh, so we're, we're really underway. Um, it's going to be big and it's going to be very fraught between now and then. But it's time for me to clock off and uh, let you ask any questions uh, if you'd like to or um, go home. Thank you very much for listening. I can take a few questions, yes. Batter them all into submission. Only, uh, we, we have, um, I, I didn't highlight it in here, of course, um, uh, Weybridge was in the forefront of the carbon fibre um, revolution. Uh, they started playing with carbon fibre back in the 1970s. We've got significant carbon fibre structures on display in the factory. And um, uh, only this morning I was looking at the rushes of the film, which will be accompanying those on a, on a screen uh, because it's quite difficult to let people play with carbon fibre. The uh, fabric is not exactly the sort of stuff you want kids handling. Um, so what we've done is we've filmed um, uh, the, uh, the manufacturer of, uh, uh, of components uh, in carbon fibre and we're displaying it in the, uh, in the factory. Um, one of the things I, did, uh, I didn't get around to mentioning uh, because we haven't got the, uh, the display installed yet at the end of your tour through the factory, we actually introduce people to a video wall of the future challenges in aircraft uh, design and manufacture. You know, the, the, how do the lightweight materials, what, what happens when uh, the fossil fuels run out, 
how are we going to power aeroplanes, what sort of aeroplanes are they going to be, are we going to have a personal aircraft revolution, are we going to have more supersonics, all that sort of thing. We're, going to, we're not presenting people with the designs of future aeroplanes, we're presenting them with the problems and just seeing what sort of compromises are involved. You know, can you actually make a nuclear-powered aeroplane? Can you make a, uh, a solar electric-powered aeroplane that will carry a decent payload? And all that sort of thing. So we're, we're offering all those things up and offering them the thoughts. Carbon fibre. Down on the floor, we actually have um, example captive examples of various aircraft construction materials. So we have Kevlar and uh, glass fibre uh, down there. We have... Uh, metals ranging from steel through to titanium uh, and uh, aerospace grade uh, aluminium alloy, all these things, so people can feel for themselves how much weight you can save by using uh, the, the more modern materials. So there's a whole raft of things that we're sprinkling through uh, the factory, so it's not looking back all the time, it is actually looking forwards as well. There, there is a photograph of that computer uh, within the displays and we have examples of all that technology that you're talking about, uh, the drawings, the drawing instruments, the, the drawing board, all these things we're displaying, yes. What about the On lofting plates, and we have we have lofting plates. Those of you who visited the museum uh, a lot in uh, in previous years would have noticed that as the the old uh, wire reinforced windows of the hangar cracked and broke and fell out, they were replaced by lofting plates. Um, <laughs> and fortunately, we have dozens of them, uh, and not only do we have lofting plates in the um, in the factory, but um, outside, um, we, we will have a huge um, uh, board noting the uh, contributions of the major donors. We have another one inside listing the hundreds of other people who've donated as well. But the, the major donor board uh, outside the front door is based on the design of lofting plates. And so uh, three of the five panels are actually uh, lofting plates. 
So, uh, yeah, and again, it's a, it's a technology that's totally alien uh, to, to the modern day. And it's really important that we remind people how it was done. Yeah, well, some of this stuff, you know, we, we just wish we knew where it had all gone, but it all got thrown out as technology advanced. You know, I spent some time trying to find one of the big uh, skin mills so that we could have one of those, and we'd, we'd never found out where they where they ended up because they didn't end up in Preston, which is where we thought they did. But, uh, what happened to the house? Ah, indeed. We have photographs of it, but we don't actually have it. And what we have got is some of the, um, uh, the formers from it, uh, which are on display in there as well. So yeah, we've tr we've tried to save as much of this, and up, up in the design office we've got plan chests with examples of all the uh, dye line and uh, and uh, drawings and tracings and all that sort of thing, so people can actually look at uh, all the sort of stuff. You'll be able to go up there and see if your name's on any of it. We've got, I'm trying to think what we have got. Um, we've got we've got some stuff uh, in one of the flip books. I think, yes, we have got stuff about about that. Um, probably largely referring through to um, how, the, uh, how the rise of the computer um, uh, affected so much of that stuff. But we have photographs of all these uh, officers and all these hundreds of you uh, sitting in serried ranks. Um, uh, Doing all these things in minute detail. Yes. <laughs> well, we've got some of that as well. Stuff all the foreigners made, you know, ashtrays made out of bits of Viscount and all that sort of thing. As uh, as foreigners on a Friday afternoon, you've yeah, got all that. Now, um, to deal with the condensation, we've uh, insulated it, um, and uh, so far it seems to be remarkably condensation-free. Um, yeah, we're very, very pleased with the uh, with the environment. Um, I honestly don't think we've got anything about um, uh, about shot peening. We've got uh, we've got something uh, something about. Um, uh, I think there's a mention somewhere of. Um, uh, of uh, forming shapes uh, using uh, well, we're we're talking about uh, things like you know, using English wheels and so forth to form complex shapes, and we mentioned the other the other techniques for for doing it at the same time. We don't we don't actually talk about crack detection, I think, other than mentioning um, the the challenges of designing pressurized fuselages. But I'm sure there's a lot more that we can do over the years and refine it. But what, what we've got is, I hope, a pretty good representation of most of the things that went on in the factory, including what went on after hours. So we've got a tribute area to the sports clubs and uh, what people did uh, uh, outside the, uh, the factory as well. 
My curators are shuddering at the thought that people are going to come in here and say, I've got a better one of those, you can have it. I'll bring it in on Tuesday. Uh, and why haven't you got one of these? And uh, yeah, we think uh, we will actually get um, a lot of stuff as a direct result of opening this up and people seeing um, what has been saved and thinking, well, yeah, I admit that stuff when I walked out of here in 1975. Would you like it back? Yeah, and the answer probably is yes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's a particular privilege uh, for me to deliver this vote of thanks because uh, for two reasons, really. I, I was an apprentice here. I worked uh, in the factory here uh, during my apprenticeship and in the design office. And uh, so I've seen a, a lot of memories on that screen. I made a few notes. Don't worry, I shan't read them all out. Uh, and secondly, uh, I was privileged to have a, to a tour of the new facility as a potential uh, steward for it, so I can uh, certainly uh, endorse what Alan has been saying, and uh, I do hope that uh, you know as many of you as possible will, will visit the uh, the new facility. I do remember quite some time ago, uh, many years ago, at what I think the AG, AGM, I made a plea for more explanation in the museum as to how the aircraft were created, and certainly uh, Alan has responded magnificently uh, to that. So I thank you. Um, what, I, what has not been mentioned, uh, one of the things I, I remember from here was the tremendous work ethic and uh, the fun we had and really it was a very, a very happy place to work, at least that was my experience. Maybe others have got different uh, experiences but uh, I hope that it, you know, we, uh, we will be able to develop that and I hope to be one of the stewards uh, helping to, to do that. Um, I particularly enjoyed the picture of the dump for the British Aerospace. I remember as an apprentice, one of my first weeks we, as a 16-year-old boys do, we had a bit of an exploration and we went into the bushes around the back here because we thought it all looked quite interesting and we found a gun turret from a Wellington in there. <laughs> we, we, looked the word, we looked for the guns but we couldn't find them. But anyway, uh, and, uh, but I, the other thing I've got, yes, authentic benches. I thought the benches were very good. I saw them. Uh, when I went uh, went round, uh, Roy, thank you very much. You've mentioned a few other points. Uh, thank you, Roy, and uh, I, I think it, it will genuinely inspire uh, the, those people who who visit uh, here. So, uh, Alan, thank you very much indeed. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if we could thank uh, Alan in the in the usual way.